I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Aaron Jordan Afela on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Levy, I'm fabulous. Fun to be here, finally. It's nice to have you here. I feel like there have been a number of people in this room who have talked about you when, when you weren't here, which is kind of uh, actually impolite in certain circles. So it's nice to speak to the man himself. Hopefully they said nice things. I, I feel like they did. So you went to school at George Washington University in D.C. I did. The known hotbed of enology and viticulture. Uh, I did not grow up in a wine-oriented family in, at all. I grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and, and um, wine was not really a part of the household. So um, I was actually exposed to wine for the first time while I was in college. I had a, a very good friend uh, who's still a good friend who uh, had a job at what he considered to be a liquor store. And he actually said to me, if you're looking for a job, I, I got a place for you. And explained that he worked in a liquor store. And I said, what do you do? And he said, I unload trucks. And I said, yeah, I could do that. I'm strong back. And I kind of paused because in Pennsylvania, a liquor store, it's a state controlled system. So a liquor store is where you buy liquor and wine, although I wasn't really conscious of wine and beer was purchased in a separate establishment. So my immediate question to him was, do they sell beer? And he said, oh yeah, yeah, they sell beer. And I said, do you get a discount? And he said, yeah. And I said, well, why are we standing around here? Why don't we go up to the shop? So, you know, a month into the job, I look at my buddy as we're unloading a truck and I said, you know, it's not much of a liquor store, really. It's kind of a wine shop. And he said, how do you know? And I said, because I'm reading the boxes. I'm kind of bored unloading the truck and I'm not positive, but I think Chardonnay is actually like wine, not, that's not booze. Like, I've never seen Chardonnay booze. So unbeknownst to the two of us, we were actually working in a moderately high-end fine wine shop, a place called Bell's Wine and Spirits. The brothers Luskin, Fred and Bob Luskin, and they were amazing guys, and they took an interest in me. And it, it kind of stemmed from a very particular incident, which was a customer walked in, and I happened to be standing up by the front of the store. I think I was on a soda break, and uh, the customer looked at me and said, do you work here? And I looked around and said, "Me? oh, yeah, I work here. And he said, I'm, I'm looking for a bottle of Chardonnay. And I thought about it for a second, and I said, domestic or imported? 
And he said, what do you have for imports? And I thought about it. And I was like, well, uh, we got Chardonnay from France and Australia. And I might have one from New Zealand. And, and he said, I'll stick with domestic. And I said, great. If you walk straight back there on the left, second room, you'll find it. And he said, great. And he walked away. And one of the owners of the shop happened to be within earshot and said, Jordan, get over here. Yes, Mr. Luskin. He said, you got a collared shirt at home? And I said, oh, yeah, got a whole closet full of them. He said, wear it to work tomorrow. And I said, you know, I don't really like to wear my nice clothes to unload trucks. And he said, I got 15 guys that unload trucks that never would have answered that guy the way you did. I want you working the floor. And I said, wow, that's uh, <clears throat> I, I'm a little startled. I got to tell you, I don't know anything about wine. And he said, you knew enough to send that guy to the right spot. And I said, well, you know, I kind of get bored unloading trucks. So I read the boxes. But I mean, that's it. I don't I know what I've read on the box. And he basically said, you know what? Wine's pretty straightforward. Like, we'll teach you wine. I mean, if you're curious, we open 10 bottles of wine every Saturday in the shop. No limits on what we do. This would have been 1985. So, I mean, it would not be an unusual thing if the first shipment of Bordeaux showed up, they would open all the first growths and the super seconds. And that would be the Saturday tasting. So, I mean, I just stumbled into this sort of epic scene. And I worked there throughout college, like full time, 40 hours a week, because they were open late at night. And um, I graduate, I have a degree in art history and classical archaeology, which, you know, once you go to GW, it's the logical stepping stone to the wine industry. And my parents had always said, you study something you like, learn how to read and write and speak, you know, and I mean, if you have some really intense interest in sciences or engineering, sure, you're going to need to study that. But if not, finish college and go do something, you know, p people will hire you. So I immediately got a job working for a wine wholesaler. I was dating a woman who had gotten a fellowship to get her master's degree at the University of Denver. So I followed her out West and in relatively short order, I got a job working for a company called Western Davis. And, uh, you know, they had a fine wine division, which in 1989 is a relative term. Um, but I mean, some decent wines. I mean, we had some Bordeaux in the, the book and I mean, we were the Kendall Jackson distributor. And my territory was Arvada, which is not anywhere you're going to sell in 1989. It was kind of shot in a beer places, a couple mom and pop liquor stores. And uh, I had the fortunate that I, I think there was the element of we have to give you a little bit more in order for you to earn your living. And so I had a couple of B&Bs up in the mountains north of Boulder on the way to Rocky Mountain National park and you know i if i had gotten into wholesale at a different time i probably would have liked it more what do you mean by that i don't think the wine business was that evolved and i really felt like i was running into a brick wall and you know i wasn't super passionate about the wines it was more about you know how many boxes have you moved and so it's sort of it changed wine for me into something when I worked in the retail shop and you're dealing with the end consumer, there's sort of an excitement about I've tried this and I'd love for you to try this and to have them then come back to you and say, I like that, but I really like this more. That interaction is amazing. And I, you know, I, I lack that on the wholesale side. I think that exists today for sure. Um, so I moved on 
I quit my job. My relationship was in the final stages anyway. And uh, I was going to move back to the East Coast. And I had a colleague at the wholesale company that said, so let me get this straight. You like to ski. You've moved 2,000 miles to the front range of the Rockies. And you're going to go back to New England? I mean, no offense to New England and all, but I could get you a job in five minutes. And he was the sales rep that called on Aspen. And I took him up on it. And of course, this is pre-cell phone days. And he was like, well, come with me. We were at the sales meeting and you know, got on the phone and called somebody and had, yeah, he's right here. And it was uh, super cool. You'll love him. Yeah, you should just hire him. And uh, I got on the phone and there was a woman on the other end who said, I rarely hire people without meeting them. But, and I said, you know what? I rarely go to work for people without meeting them. It's Friday. Why don't I just drive up there tomorrow and we'll meet? And we did. And I got hired and I moved to Aspen. This was the restaurant tour? This was the GM partner at the restaurant that I had spoken with on the phone. And the restaurant's still there. It's actually in Snowmass, which is one of the four mountains that Aspen Ski Co. owns. The restaurant was called Il Poggio, uh, an Italian restaurant, which I later discovered was a, I mean, copy is a powerful word, but a very close proximity to a restaurant in St. Helena called Trevina. And the majority owner of the restaurant, who was a former Goldman Sachs guy named George Schuss. George had retired. He was the mayor of Snowmass, and he had dined with his wife at Trevenia and said, Snowmass needs a restaurant like this. And in the course of their meal, they had encountered one of the assistant managers. At that time, Kevin Cronin was the GM and Michael Chiarello was the chef, and they got to talking with a woman named Sue Lynn Thomas, who Jack said, you know, why don't you move to Colorado and open a restaurant with me? I'll back you. I'll own, let's say, 80%. I'll give you 20% stake, and you run it. And so she populated, because at that time in the Napa Valley, come wintertime, I mean, there was nobody there. So she grabbed a bunch of people from the restaurant and said, hey, you want to make money in the winter? Come with me which in turn begat me going to the Napa Valley because two of my roommates were from the Napa Valley. And at the end of the ski season in Aspen, the restaurant closed for two or three months and none of us could afford to not work for that long. So we went back to Napa and I never went back. The woman that was the chef at the restaurant had been the crush chef at Joseph Phelps Vineyard. So Phelps would um, hire a chef every year to cook a meal. I mean, brilliant idea, Joe Phelps was truly a visionary human being on a lot of levels. But, you know, you ran two shifts at the winery. And his thing was, if you cook dinner and have a meal at the shift change where you would sit down with the person that was going to do what you were doing all day, have a meal and say, hey, you know, tank seven is kind of problematic. It's trying to get hot or it's not fermenting enough. And so there was this awesome transfer of information rather than just someone punching out and another person punching in and trying to figure out what was going on. I, Joe was a, a, he brought a different, I mean, he was a construction guy. I think that element of kind of taking apart a situation from another perspective was very powerful. I mean, Joe was the one that said, so let me get this straight. You all warehouse your wine and your little tiny warehouses and forced trucks. To, like, why don't we build a cooperative building where we can all store our wine? And the wine service co-op still exists to this day. I mean, those were the kind of outside-the-box ideas that Joe brought to the table. And I mean, he's a brilliant guy and amazing. And so I, I worked at Phelps. 
How did you get that job? The previous year's crush chef had been the chef at the restaurant I worked at. And when she found out I was going to Napa, she said, hey, you know, let me call my friend over at Phelps, who's the hospitality director. You really should go. I mean, you're into wine. It's an amazing spot. It's a historic spot. It's their wines arc across a stylistic selection. I mean, you'll just, you'll love it. Trust me. I'm like, great, done. So I show up at Phelps, go on a tour. And the woman who was the hospitality director at the time, a woman named Harriet Holiday, again, this is the, I say the Joe influence, which was, she said, so what are you doing? You, you're the wine buyer at this restaurant in Colorado. It closes for two months. And in the back of her mind, I'm sure, and I mean, I know this because I later worked there, the thing was, well, why don't, why don't you come and work here for a little while? And then when you go home, you can be really fired up about Phelps Wine. And she said, you know, we're looking for a part-time tour guide if you need some stuff while that two-month thing is, you know, the restaurant closure is happening. And I was like, yeah, that'd be great. Dig it. So, you know, the fateful comment, I remember it well. She said, I'm not really the person that hires and fires that person is actually on a business trip but i mean let's call it a provisional hire and we'll get you kind of going and then when this person gets back you know just know that you need to actually pass the muster sniff test whatever you want to call it and then you'll be officially hired and i was like great so i started immediately and started you know going on tours with other tour guides to learn the story and the history and the person that was in charge came back and I got a phone call and come upstairs and you're going to need to talk with Bruce Nyers, uh, which would have been the spring of 1990. And so I went up and Bruce and I ended up having a, oh, I don't know, a two and a half hour conversation in which basically by the end of it, he said, not only are you hired, but I've been looking for a guy like you and would you be my assistant? And at the time, Bruce was the national sales manager for the winery. I mean, he'd been there since 75, he started. And basically, he said, so you have retail experience, wholesale experience, restaurant experience. Do you have a college degree? And I said, yes. No question about what it was. Like, Did you graduate in four years? I said, yes. He's like, great, you're hired. And fateful Bruce quote, like, we're not going to pay you anything and we're going to work you really hard, but I will teach you the wine business. And all was true. So I started working for Bruce. I had kind of a multifaceted job. So I gave tours, but I also, at the time, Phelps had a broker in Northern California called Wine Spell. And I would spend one day a week working with one of the Wine Spell reps in a given territory, all Northern California. So San Francisco or the East Bay or Marin. And I mean, I, after I did that for a while, I came back and said to Bruce, because I hadn't gone through a harvest at Phelps, um, you know, I'm explaining all these things that I've actually never seen happen. And there's a lot of people that I'm talking to that know so much more than me. It's really kind of intimidating. Could I work in the cellar and maybe the vineyard? And of course, Bruce said, well, sure, let's get you on salary. And then like Saturday in the cellar and then Sunday in the vineyard, if you want, it'd be perfect. And the other five days you can work in the tasting room and doing sales. So that was my program. What was the deal with winemaking at Phelps at that time? The winemaking team at Phelps consisted of Craig Williams as the winemaker. Gary Brookman was the assistant winemaker. A woman named Lisa Bishop was the head enologist. And I mean, I say that and say, so now Gary Brookman's been the head winemaker at Minor for, I don't know, 15, 20 years now. 
you know, Joe had historically surrounded the winery with really good people. Damien Parker, who later became the winemaker at uh, Joseph Phelps, was the cellar master. So there was this cast of characters that, you know, have all gone on to great success. I mean, Craig was the winemaker of great acclaim for a long time. And um, I mean, I worked in the cellar. It was more of a like get to know how to attach a hose to a tank and what a pump is and how the bottling line works. And I mean, very much rudimentary, but still eye-opening. And I, in fact, made my first wine in 1990, the fall of 1990. I made a comment to Bruce about, you know, I mean, I'm smart enough now. I'm not going to make wine here. I mean, I can be a very tiny cog in a very large machine, but I'd really like to make wine. And I'm not commercially, something small, a barrel of something. And he said, what do you want to make? And I said, a Pinot Noir. And he said, you know what? Let me do this. I'm going to make a phone call and I'll let you know. And a couple, three days later, I, I was in his office and he said, here's a phone number. Call this guy and he'll know who you are. I tell him that I told you to call him. And um, the guy was Angelo San Giacomo. And I called Ange and Bruce had sort of set up the conversation and I explained to him that I was hoping to make a barrel of wine. And he said, well, you know, that'd be probably a half a ton of grapes. And why don't you come down and uh, we'll look around and see what we've got. And I didn't know who Angelo San Giacomo was. And I was like, great, that's awesome. So we get off work one day, drive down to Sonoma and meet Ange out at the, the shop, basically. And we jump in his pickup truck and we drive around and look at vineyards. And I'm thinking, you got a lot of vineyards, man. This is like... And San Giacomo at the time was a major supplier to Phelps. And we kind of settled on an area and he was like, what are you thinking about ripeness? And I said, I don't really know much about ripeness. And he was like, you know what? I'll call you when it's ripe. And I said, great, that's great. Which were all so easy. Huh? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, so I got a call one day, hey, it's ripe. And I went and picked up my bin of grapes and um, a funny thing, you know, he refused to take money. And he just said, I, I love paying it forward and you're so enthusiastic and I love that. And we got a lot of grapes. Don't worry about it. This one's on me. And he and I have joked about that in later years. At one point when I was making the wines at Nyers, I think we were buying somewhere on the order of 150 tons of Chardonnay from Angelo. And I'm like, did you know? You're like the pusher. The first one's on me. <laughs> yeah, right. And here I am like, no, no, I need, I need 50 more tons, man. Come on. You can't do. So it is a really small business. And I mean, those lessons have always kind of rattled around in the back of my head throughout my career. And that was a powerful deal. And I learned a lot of lessons with that wine. You know, I was full of all sorts of crazy ideas. I lived in Calistoga and I hung out in this crazy little wine shop called All Seasons Wine Merchants, which was a very small room behind a restaurant in Calistoga. And the wine buyer at the shop had this phenomenal collection of, he was a total Francophile and lots of, I mean, amazing Burgundies and Rhone wines and Loire Valley wines. My experience on the East Coast was much more Eurocentric. So, I didn't know as much about California wine, so I felt comfortable in the shop. And this guy was very much a proponent of wines of minimal intervention. And he's like, read this article by Steve Tanzer, you know, read this. Like, you know, this California winemaking has veered into a land of too much intervention. 
So this guy is John Wetlaufer, <laughs> who I ended up later working for, and his wife, who is Ellen Turley. And the great feathers in my cap with Bruce Nyers was I actually sold John Wetlaufer wine, um, which apparently, you know, unbeknownst to me, I Bruce saw something in a depletion report and he said, hey, um, were you involved in the sale of that case of Gewurztraminer to All Seasons Cafe? And I was like, yeah, I sold that to John. And I'm thinking, am I in trouble? Right, Did right. I do something wrong? Right. He said, do you know how long I've been trying to sell wine to that account and getting stiff-armed? And Bruce is probably the single greatest wine salesman I've ever encountered in my life by some order of magnitude over the next closest person. Um, so this kind of loops back around to that Pinot Noir. I got the Pinot Noir and thought, well, I'm just not going to do anything. I'm not going to add any yeast. I'm not going to, and it was in a bin. And uh, I had been convinced by the powers that be, well, you know, have to destem it. It's Pinot Noir. I'm like, okay, I, you know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just kind of like reading articles in various publications and thinking about wines that I like. And uh, the interesting thing was sort of how confronting that wine was to people that make a lot of wine. You know, you got to think about this is 1990 and here I am not adding yeast. There's no SO2 and people are like, well, you can't keep that in the cellar. That thing's going to be like a biological disaster. We can't have it around. Like you got to take it outside. And I always think back to that. I'm like, wow, that, I mean, who cares? We were doing thousands of tons of fruit and you're kind of nervous about, I didn't get that at the time, but over the years, I've sort of appreciated that more. And I think about kind of where my winemaking is today and on some level how cowed is probably the wrong word, but vaguely intimidated I was when people that actually made wine for a living were telling me, you can't do that. I'm like, well, I'm smart enough to know. I was hanging out in the Kermit Lynch shop the other day and like, all these wines that I really like to drink, they don't do any of this stuff. So that was a great process for me. It was kind of the process of this is one way of making wine, which, you know, Phelps at the time was a big winery. It was, uh, I may have been bigger then than it is today, just because of the types of wine. I mean, Phelps was still making like 15,000 cases of Johannesburg Riesling in 1990. So, I mean, it was a you know, 125,000 case event. And First harvest, always fun stuff. I remember looking at Craig Williams, the very first, this is a, a fun sort of not so fun, fun story, which was the very first gondola, not something you see much anymore, of Sauvignon Blanc grapes showed up at the winery. And it was a big deal. And, you know, the, everyone came out from the office and Joe did a toast with champagne and very festive. And I was fascinated by the process. So as the winch has hooked onto the side of the gondola and is dumping it into the screw auger, I'm following, you know, the screw auger drops into the crusher destemmer and there's a must pump and there's a big like six inch hose and it's going into the press house and the presses were up above. The crush pit was, you know, down a story and there was a pump that then pumped the must up into the press. And there was a guy there with rice hulls in order to not have the perforations outside of the press blinded by the grape skins because they had been destemmed. So you would get this sort of mucilaginous membrane of grapes and the flow would stop. They later figured out to put these 
sort of fingers that stick up that allow the flow to continue. But at the time, you know, it was older technology. So unbeknownst to me, somebody had forgotten to hook up the hose from the must pump in the press house that went up to the press. So basically wine was coming into this pump and instead of ejecting into a hose and into the press, it was just going up into the air. So I sat there for a good like <laughs> two or three minutes watching it. I'm like, okay, there's got to be like a float switch somewhere or once the room fills up to like a certain depth, there's another pump and I'm watching it and I'm watching it and I'm watching it. And I'm like, I don't get it. So I go back over to Craig and I'm like, so Craig, and he's, you know, there's a lot of people and they're talking to him. He's like, Yo, you know, what, what, what do you need? And I'm like, I, I just have one question. Like, to how, how do you get the stuff from the room with the pump where it's like spraying into the ceiling? How does it get up into the press? And he was like, yeah, that's really funny. I'm like, well, no. I. <laughs> and he glanced down into the pit. And at that point, like the wad of grapes was coming out the door. And he's like, oh, stop everything, please. Yeah, it was, I, I still chuckle about that. And I actually still am in contact with Craig and enjoy, uh, that's one of those stories. I'm like, you remember the time when <laughs> the follies of the wine industry? But yeah, I, I had a, an amazing time. I worked at Phelps for harvest of 90, 91 and 92. That time, Joe had purchased the, the property on Manly Lane in Rutherford. He had acquired the vineyard in Stag's Leap uh, that was kind of right next to Fay. I mean, on some level as well, when you think back to early Napa days of purchasing fruit and that transition, I mean, there weren't really a lot of little tiny wineries. I mean, there were the guy, but a lot of people bought a lot of fruit. And I think, you know, one of Joe's visions was I need to own these sites. And he systematically went about acquiring vineyards in areas that today have become, you know, really benchmark areas. Like this is you you want to own grapes on Manly Lane in Rutherford. That's a great spot. And, you know, having 40 acres in Stag's Leap is not a bad thing either. So I go back to Joe as a visionary guy. He was really smart and saw things, I think, that maybe he was looking through a different lens. I don't know how to fully quantify it because I was pretty young and not totally perceptive to all things. But, I mean, in hindsight, I'm like, wow, that was – Joe was smart. It was a little Syrah around, right? I mean, he was a Rhone guy. Joe bottled the first varietal Syrah in California. There was a Syrah vineyard on Zinfandel Lane that Christian Brothers owned, and I still have a bottle, 1974 Joseph Phelps Syrah that I, Marcel Gigal was visiting the winery one day, and I'm like, I got to get him to autograph, so I'll get a bottle of that. So I have a first domestically created varietal Syrah with Gigal's signature on it somewhere sitting in my cellar. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The fun thing at Phelps too was it was a substantive winery. And so you had a lot of visitors that came through from you know the wine world, from other worlds and awesome exposure. I mean, that to me was my stepping stone to Europe. Bruce decided to retire and soon after retirement was approached by Kermit Lynch and ended up going to work for Kermit, although those were not, those were separate transactions. Um, I mean, you made it to Vin Expo. Did it happen because of that or? Yes. Uh, so I was, my many hats at Phelps. I mean, one of the things I did was export sales and really not because I had any expertise. It was because no one else was doing it and it was kind of on Bruce's plate. And he was like, can you deal with this? I mean, it's kind of funny to think about the fact that really we didn't export any wine, which is why it got handed to me. And so we were members of the California Wine Institute. The Wine Institute was sponsoring a booth at Vin Expo in 1991. 
and I made a proposal to the winery that, you know, Joe and Bruce said, yeah, it's a good idea. Like if, you, if you're really serious about exporting wine, we should go over there and kind of show what we've got and see if we can find some agents maybe in Northern tier countries, which, you know, I don't know that American wineries are ever going to sell a lot of wine in France and Spain and Italy, but you know, you get into Germany and other North, I mean, Germany is probably the one wine producing country where I think there's the potential to sell a fair amount of red wine and then other Northern tier countries. And did you have some language skills from the art history training or I, um, would have told you with a straight face that I spoke French fluently. That was later disproved when I moved to France, but, uh, <laughs> I was certain I spoke French fluently. Uh, so yeah, we, we went to Vin Expo. Um, you know, regrettably, the night before Vin Expo started, Bruce got a call from his sister that his dad had passed away, and he and Barbara made emergency plans to return to the United States. And it came over. I was staying at Chateau La Louvière. They were staying at Chateau Busco, and knocked on my window. Or like, we're leaving. We're driving to Barcelona and flying home. What? And he explained it to me. And it's like three o'clock in the morning. He's like, just you know, hold down the fort and do the right thing. And they left. So, um, you know, the tie-in to my France experience was I was standing in the, the Phelps booth within the California Wine Pavilion at Vin Expo, and Michel Chapoutier showed up. He had been a stagiaire at, at Phelps, and he had come by to say hi to Bruce. And I sort of kindly explained, I mean, I vaguely knew who he was because I liked French wine and I liked Rhone wines. And um, he, I explained to him through a translator because I didn't actually speak French, um, that Bruce, what, what had gone on. And Michel had two guys with him. One guy was Jean-Luc Colombo, who was at the time Michel's consulting enologist. And the other guy was a family friend and a guy named Claude Scherer, who translated for him. Claude spoke flawless English, was a Irish and Scottish woolen men's clothing merchant who had a shop in Tournon and was a total wine nut and had a lot of customers who were in the wine business and events like this. Chapoutier said, hey, want to come with us to Bordeaux and translate? So um, they said, well, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm you know doing the booth. And they said, well, no, no, not that after, you know, after hours. I mean, there's so much going on. What are you doing? And I said, I, I don't have any plans. And Michel said, well, come with us. And I spent the week going to wine tastings and dinners with them and at, I had actually, in advance of Vin Expo, set up a whole host of appointments in Burgundy. I had this laundry list. I mean, every day was full of appointments. And they said, oh, you know, you can go to Burgundy another time. Come and stay with us in the Rhone. We'll show you the Rhone Valley. And the fellow that was the translator, Claude Scherer, said, my wife and I have a home in the hills above Saint-Jean-de-Musol. We have extra bedrooms. Our kids are all out of the house. You should come and stay with us. And, um, Claude was great because he looked at my itinerary and he said, cancel all of these appointments except Romani Conti because they probably won't let you back in. You should go up there for that. I'll go with you. And, uh, so the only appointment I kept was driving up to Romani Conti and tasting there, which was another phenomenal tasting. But I spent the rest of the time sort of hanging out in the Northern Rhone Valley. I mean, I went to Chapoutier, Colombo was consulting for... I don't know the exact number at the time, but I would say somewhere on the order of 25 or 30 you know, wineries that I'd not heard of all of them. I'd certainly heard of some of them, 
but a lot of them are more householdy names within the wine community today. I mean, it's Yves Cuiron and Bernard Bourgault and uh, Georges Vernet and Condrieu. And, and it's a long list. It, it was one of those, I look back on it and think, whoa, like you had serious clients. What was Colombo like? Like as a person, what was he like? He's an amazing guy. I mean, he's still, I saw him last year. He's, he doesn't look any different than when I worked for him. And I had to think about it. Like, I worked for you 20 years ago. You look exactly the same. He's this sort of indefatigable bundle of energy and he's constantly moving and incredibly curious. And I mean, I would say that some of my winemaking curiosity certainly comes from that. And I think part of it was he was everywhere. He had clients from the cooperative and Banyuls all the way across the Languedoc, Roussillon, the Var, up the Rhone from Chateauneuf and Cote d'Rhone village producers through every appellation of the Northern Rhone. I mean, Switzerland. So across this arc of grapes and styles of wine. And, you know, I continue to be excited by all sorts of things. And I think it's a direct result of that. I find it fascinating. I mean, I find wine fascinating. But maybe that's why you guys bonded, the two of you. He obviously saw something in you. Well, and I think there, there was that element of we were both outsiders because Cornas is a pretty closed community. I mean, certainly in 19, I moved there in the fall of 1992 and Jean-Luc had moved there relatively recently. I think the first vintage of Le Rocher was 87. So, I mean, he might have been there for five years, but I mean, five years in Cornas is a blink of an eye. And he was still totally an outsider. I mean, Jean-Luc grew up outside of Marseille. He spoke with a different accent. My experience of being in Cornas in the beginning, I mean, I shipped my car over from the States. I actually drove from California to Bayonne, New Jersey, put it on a boat, and picked it up in Le Havre. So I had, you know, U.S. plates on my car. Everybody in town knew that there was, you know, I, I always say, if you think about the French license plate, you know, the R dash is 07 and the Drome, which is right on the other side of the Rhone River is 26. And if you had a 26 license plate and drove through Cornas, you got the same stink eye that I got with a, you know, Pennsylvania license plate on a Subaru and Subarus weren't sold in France. So like, I've never seen that car. I have like, who is this? So it was a pretty close community. And on some levels, when you think about wine in that part of the world, I mean, there were the occasional global superstar. I mean, I would put Gerard Chave was certainly in that mix and Chapoutier and Gigal and within Cornas, I think Klopp would qualify in that vein. But really, it was pretty humble folk farming small plots, making small amounts of wine in a unbelievably modest setting if you compare it to Bordeaux or the Napa Valley. I mean, stunningly modest, like dirt floor cellars, no refrigeration, no hot water. And yet there are these extraordinary wines emerging from them. And I mean, again, you talk about experiences that inform your winemaking. I don't have formal training. So my training was those experiences. And you know, I have friends that work at really fancy wineries. 
that have every toy known to man. And I mean, that's awesome. And I certainly appreciate using those toys. But in the back of my mind, I also think, well, you know, I could make wine with almost nothing. I mean, a dirt floor and a fermenter. Great wines are not necessarily the product of technology. They, you know, great wines come from great places that are really well farmed. And my favorite wines tend to be wines where the winemaker's print is very difficult to detect. What were some examples of that for you, like early in? When I worked in California, I certainly was conscious of Kermit Lynch's business and, you know, I kept having wines and turning the bottle around. I mean, oh, it's another Kermit Lynch wine that I really like. So within the Kermit wines, it's actually very funny to think about the fact that Shav was $35 a bottle at the shop and it was floor stacked. And that was too expensive for me. That was the same price that Insignia was. And you're talking about the most expensive wines in the Napa Valley at the time were $35 or $40 a bottle. So, you know, I tried them because Bruce bought those wines and Bruce was super generous with tasting wines with me. But Chaves San Joseph was kind of my speed or Versailles Cornas. You used to hang out with Versailles. I did. I had the great pleasure of uh, Noel Versailles company on many, many, many occasions. I, you know, when I, I worked for Jean-Luc and Jean-Luc was sort of the bad boy of Cornas would be kind of a weird way to say it. But I mean, on a lot of levels, he kind of shook up the, the status quo. You know, going to Versailles cellar, it was two concrete fermenters. And then he had a couple of like hundred year old foudres and that was it. And Colombo had Jean-Luc had stainless steel. I mean, all things that were familiar to me from working in California, but I mean, radically new stuff for Cornos. He had new Bordeaux barrels. He bottled in a Bordeaux bottle. He was just on every level sort of confrontational to the status quo of Cornos. And I... I knew the Versailles wines. I knew the Clap wines as well, but August Clap always like intimidated the crap out of me. <laughs> I hear that. He's actually. this very yeah. stoic, like super stern guy. I mean, I've later I got to know him and Pierre Marie, and it was a little more comfortable, but never as comfortable. Versailles was just this cherubic, super friendly guy in a town that wasn't that friendly to outsiders. And you think that that's because he was a widower? His wife had just passed away. I mean, I kind of wandered down the street and introduced myself and explained to him how it was that I knew who he was and the importer from California. And I was just curious. I thought his wines were great. I was, you know, he's this, I mean, Noel Versailles was probably 5'2", weighed 120 pounds. He was a little guy. And, you know, he'd ride his bike up to the vineyard and hand hoeing. And I mean, I'd see him around town and, and I, I was just curious. I'm like, these extraordinary, I mean, his wines, when I always think about Cornas and Klopp versus Versailles, I mean, Versailles was always more ethereal and, you know, in the world of Syrah and California, it was always this relatively massive kind of monolithic wines that actually were more like Klopp's wines. Whereas Versailles kind of hit these other notes that were much more, you know, more Cote Roti, Saint Joseph, more ethereal. And I was more curious about that element of Syrah. So that sort of, I think I leaned towards him no matter what, but because he was sort of the friendlier guy of the group, I 
gravitated him. So yeah, I would go over there regularly and have a meal, have a glass of wine. And, you know, when I think about my thoughts on Syrah, I probably, you know, and I mean, I consider Jean-Luc to be a great friend of mine. He was making wine in a different way than I kind of in my vision, ultimately where I wanted to go. And it's not that I don't like modernity. I just, I'm more fascinated by the old way. And I tend to, in my general sense of wine, is that if it worked for all these hundreds of years, there's got to be something to it. Now, if you've got the blazing hot vintage, is it nice to have refrigeration? Yeah. But I mean, that didn't happen in Cornos that often. So refrigeration wasn't that big of a deal. You know, a lot of people didn't bottle their wines. I mean, they were sold in bulk to negociants. I mean, Gigal and Chaputier were negociants and, you know, Delas and those firms. And I mean, there were very few people that bottled their wine. I mean, when I worked there, it was still, I mean, about 10, 12 guys. I mean, it was Versailles and Clap and Colombo and Lyonnais and Vosges and Robert Michel. And I start to run out of names like that. Uh, the Corby brothers were really young and just starting. I mean, we used to hang out together too. They were clients of Jean-Luc. So I, I met a lot of people that way. But I always come back to like the old way. Like these guys were picking grapes into willow baskets and carrying them down and walking up the wooden ladder and dumping them whole cluster into the concrete fermenter. Seems pretty simple. And yet they're creating these wines that I find fascinating. I, you know, I would fast forward to Thierry Alamon is that like the apex of that idea. And if someone had touched me with a magic wand and said, you now own these vineyards, I, I humbly aspire to think that maybe I might have done something like what he did. I mean, I still think he's potentially the greatest winemaker in France. I find his wines to be absolutely riveting. You're quoted in Lima's book about Alamon, right? I remember that's the first thing we ever talked about was Alamon. He took Cornas to some other place that I still think nobody ever has. And it was that refinement of the old ways. And yet there was still a lot of hygiene issues that go on. And, you know, the wines had a lot of Britannomyces. And, you know, I'm not one of those people that says, I hate bread and all wines are ruined. I just, you know, it's not an effective lens. It's sort of this obscuring agent that it's hard, harder to see the place through the lens of Brett. And I always, you know, the running joke is like, don't confuse Britannomyces with terroir. They are not the same thing. But speaking about terroir, I mean, what's Chaillot like when you're standing there? What's it like? Oh, I mean, I, I, Jean-Luc used to take great pride, I think, in, you know, I'd be out like backpack spraying or hoeing and he'd have some English speaking visitor, whether it was from the States or the UK. And, you know, they'd stand at the top of the hill and wait for me to get up there. And Jean-Luc would say, you know, I want to introduce you to my, my vineyard worker. He's, uh, he's been with me now for a year and I would like pull off my hat and my bandana and everything and start speaking, you know, American English. And people were always, it was a bit startling. I mean, Shio is a magical place, you know, extraordinary, this sort of sandy granite pitch that shouldn't be standing at the angle that it's at because you would think it would all run to the bottom. And, um, you know, Reynard is sort of like that too. 
Shio's sort of due easterly exposed, whereas Reynard kind of gets towards the south and is a little more protected from the prevailing wind because it's kind of on the backside of the Lakote. And I mean, all of Kornos. I mean, the crazy thing to me when I moved to Kornos was that the entire village of Kornos, all hectare included, was smaller than Joseph Phelps. All producers combined made less wine. And that was my first sort of aha moment of small and artisanal. Speaking about small and artisanal, I mean, at least in that area, there was also Trollot kicking around, right? Like, I mean, I know he's not in Cornell, but not that far away. Summer after Vin Expo, when I was staying with Claude Scherer and his wife, Michelle, first night I was there, we had uh, a welcome you know, glass of wine and it stays light, pretty late in that part of the world. And I mean, it was probably 6.30 and he said, you know, I've got a neighbor who uh, makes some really good wines and let me call him. He's probably in from the vineyard and we should go down and taste. And I said, oh, great. You know, that sounds good. And he makes a phone call and we jump in the car and drive down the little country road. And as we drive in, I see the name, it's Trola. Like, I, I know these wines. Like Kermit brings Trola into the United States. And so Raymond Trollach comes in, he's wearing, you know, the white, the wife beater and been out in the vineyard working all day. He's just sweaty and we start tasting and I didn't say a lot. I don't think he caught that I was American because he's his neighbor. You know, I'm with his neighbor and they're just chit-chatting away and classic Northern Rhone. You get a sort of a, a small highball, maybe a, a six ounce highball glass. I mean, no stem, just a blunt tasting instrument. And he goes to the first container, Fudra, I don't, can't even remember what it was, and fills the glass all the way to the top and hands it to me and does one for himself and does one for Claude. And he takes his and drinks it. Like there's no swirling, there's no smelling. And I drank it and I was like, oh, maybe there's a different Trolla because this wine's horrible volatile, nasty, and, you know, you kind of choke it down politely. And I'm thinking, was it Raymond Trolla or maybe it was Raoul? I, yeah, the famous I Raoul Trolla. Ra- Raoul Trolla of Saint-Jean-de-Mousseau. And, um, you know, I'm like racking my brain. I'm like, no, it can't be the same guy. And he goes to the next vessel and we did the same, like, oh, volatile, nasty. And at some point, I said something and he kind of looked at me and said, wait a minute, you're an American? And I said, yes. And he's like, oh, hang on a second. My U.S. importer, he has to pick his barrel and I have to put it all the way in the back. And he kind of went on this big, like vaguely snide tirade about, you know, his U.S. importer who wanted to pick all the wines the same. And he went in the back, uh, like the room that was the furthest into the hill and the coldest. And he you know, like motioned us back and we all got our glasses. It's like, yeah, there it is. That's the wine. And that was the first time that I sort of said, huh, you know, I've read Kermit's book and I, and I read everything with kind of a vague grain of salt. And he wasn't kidding. Like you go into these cellars and there's a lot of junk and you find the occasional pearl and that's, that was true, really true. And, uh, that was, a another, I mean, I think about revelatory experiences because, you know, in that part of the world, you bottled on demand. If your U S importer ordered his cases, you went and bottled it. 
you didn't bottle everything. The wine wasn't homogenous. There could be a Trola bottling that you encountered somewhere else that was totally different because it came from a different foodra. Maybe it spent the summer in the garage that didn't have air conditioning. I mean, that I didn't realize, I mean, in my mind, I mean, California was it. So when you bottle the Sauvignon Blanc, you take all the Sauvignon Blanc and put it in a big tank and bottle it in one day. And every bottle you have is more or less the same, but that really wasn't the case. So, I mean, I had a lot of aha moments in my, my time in the Rhone. I, you know, I think about my time there and I'll have friends say, you know, well, what were the pHs like? And I have no idea. Like I wasn't that conscious of winemaking. I mean, it's sort of like the drinking from the fire hose element. I was so overwhelmed with all the things that were coming at me. I didn't even know what to look for on certain levels. Like if I went back and did another harvest, I would have this whole completely radically different experience than I did. And, and not to say that I didn't have a phenomenal experience that formed me in many ways, but it wasn't that like highly technical experience. It was more, it just sort of washed over me. And I took a lot away that took me a while to process. Well, it sounds like the cultural divide was pretty stark. It was. I mean, I what I came to find out rapidly is sort of Ardechois is a very different form of French than most other areas. I, I mean, that was the, I just figured French was French. And I'd been to Paris and like, yeah, I can get around. And, you know, you show up in the Ardèche and I'm thinking, are you speaking French? And then I've got a boss who speaks French with a totally different accent. And I always say, you know, France is the size of Texas with the accent difference that the United States has. I mean, it's really powerful. I, I probably had a headache for two and a half months and then all of a sudden it cleared. And I'm like, now I speak French. Now I actually speak French. Well, they also kind of embraced you a little bit after time, right? Like Leonay's mom kind of gestured you over at one point. Oh, yeah, that was, uh, I still, I mean, I get kind of goosebumps when I think about that. I, you know, the sort of, I call it the Cornas stink eye. And so at the time, Jean-Luc Colombo had his barrel cellar underneath his house, which was down in town. And the fermentation cellar he shared with a client who was uh, Jean Leonet, who was seven houses down the street. And I would walk from Leonet's cellar, this is during harvest, back to Jean-Luc's house to have lunch and then back over. And there was an old woman that would always like stink eye me the whole way there and back. And I'm like mildly unnerving. I kind of started to ignore her. And it actually, I finally realized that it was Jean Leonet's mother. And I'm like, oh, she probably hates Americans. You know, I'm the ugly American and blah, 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 blah. And one day she kind of gestured me over. She was sitting on her stoop, she was sort of a, you know, stout French peasant woman in a blue floral print dress. I still remember, I have like vivid recollection of this. And I thought, all right, here it comes. She's finally like, I've whatever, she's gotten to the point where she's going to give it to me. Here it goes. And uh, I said, yes, madame, how are you? And she said, I've been watching you. I'm like, yes, I'm, I'm very aware of that. I've noticed you're watching me. And she said, you know, I remember in 1945 when I saw the first American GI pop his head up above that wall right there. I actually remember seeing the helmet and thinking, that's funny. I've never seen a helmet like that. And then the head came all the way up and she was like, that's not a German helmet. It's an American. And I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now telling the story and I kind of get a little choked up about it. But she then invited me into her home. She said, I will eternally be grateful to Americans. And 
I'd never like my entire thing was the French are rude and they don't like Americans. And, um, I was suddenly in her home and being offered coffee and like showered with stories and, oh, like super powerful. You know, the other sort of the Lyonnais takeaway that I always think about is uh, Jean Lyonnais at the time was uh, probably 40, 40 years old, 42. I, I'm not 100% sure. His son was 15, 16. I mean, still in school. Uh, his dad was 70 something and it was, I worked in California. I mean, it was a single generation event and, you know, so you'd have Jean Lyonnais, his son would come home from school and shovel tanks and his dad would kind of sit in the corner and not say anything. And yet he would occasionally kind of motion someone over and make a comment. And it was the distilled, you know, this is 65 vintages distilled into a paragraph. He had some good vintage. Uh... It was actually a really interesting thing because you think about, I mean, I think about myself and that element of letting go of this thing that you've shepherded for 50 years and not trying to micromanage your kids and just say, you know, in 47, this happened and I did this. And then I, it kind of happened again in like 62. And I mean, it seems like it might be happening this year. I don't know which way you want to go. I've kind of done both. And that was a pretty powerful thing to witness. You know, and I think it's something that the American wine culture as we progress, can benefit mightily from. Now that we've had the pioneer generation, now that we've had the successful business generation in terms of California wine, it does seem like the challenge is to make this a multi-generational thing. I agree 100%. And I think one of the main issues is our general Americanness uh, of I can do anything I want. I mean, the true belief that you can do whatever you want. And when you do that, your kids grow up and say, well, that's cool that you have a winery. Like, I don't want to do that. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be uh, whatever. I, I want to start a software company. I want to, and so they leave. And I think the French have succeeded in saying, that's cool, but you know, we still own the family winery. So can you come back for harvest? And I mean, I think you see that clap. I mean, if you just go to Cornas, I mean, basically August Clapp said to Pierre Marie, I mean, who was an engineer in, uh, I can't remember where he worked in Valence, but he basically said, you know, here's the deal, man. You need to, like, if you're going to do this, you need to get back here because I don't know how long I've gotten. It's going to take me like 10 or 15 years to transfer this information to you. It's not fast. You get one crack a year and it's kind of different every time. So, uh, where do you, you know, you need to make a decision and Pierre Marie quit his job and move back to Cornas. And so that element of, um, I mean, I think there's a certain element of obligation in French society that doesn't necessarily exist here. And uh, the thing for me that will be interesting, and I think you're starting to see it in France, because suddenly, I mean, working in Cornas isn't like being sentenced to hard labor, uh, which maybe 20 years ago it was. Like, you're going to go up and work that unforgiving hillside and make nothing and break your back. And now that, you know, the wines have started to receive more international acclaim, the prices have gone up. Like suddenly it's, you know, maybe the factory job isn't as attractive as this other scene. And you know, the wine business has become global. Interest has become global. So on some level, I think it's 
a more attractive proposition for young French people to stay in the family business. And I think on some level that's true in the United States too. It's no longer this sort of fringe marginal thing. It's, I mean, I see it in a lot of places. It's, you know, the wine business is, I mean, on the outside, it's very glamorous. You know, when you actually do it, do it long enough, I think you realize that there's a lot more work than might actually seem like is going on. But still, when I think about, you know, the generational transfer, and it's definitely something that my years at Turley, Larry's got four kids, and it, it was a topic. Like, how do you groom your kids or interest your kids in your business without smothering them and their individuality? And I mean, those are powerful things to think about. And really, I think, important things to think about if you want to have a successful multi-generational business. How did you make it back to California and end up working for Larry and then Bruce as well? Uh, so I moved to France for the harvest of 92. So did the harvest of 92 and 93. Um, in January of 93, Bruce Nyers called me, might have faxed me, I can't exactly remember, but basically reached out and said, listen, you know, as you know, I've gone to work for Kermit Lynch and Kermit has suggested that I come to France and visit all of the producers that I'm selling so that I have a you know, better command of what's going on and kind of the vintage is coming up. And as you know, uh, I don't speak French and um, it's a complex driving scene. And I was hoping maybe you might take a couple weeks off and basically come with me and translate and drive and kind of get me around. You could help them out that way. And I said, fabulous. I'd love to. I mean, I'm, you know, I'm sort of arcing across this small arc of wineries that Colombo consults for, which is awesome. I mean, a really amazing group of people and I'm being exposed to great stuff, but this was an opportunity to be exposed to the entire country. I mean, I, I picked Bruce up at the airport in Malouze and we did Alsace and then we went down to Burgundy and then we went into the Rhone and down to Chateauneuf and across the Languedoc and up to uh, I think Kermit had one Bordeaux producer at the time, but then, I mean, that was kind of a pit stop on the way to the Loire and then Champagne and, uh, I mean, really ricocheted through Paris up to Champagne and then back to Paris. And so that begat a, oh, I mean, I did that for 10 years. Uh, I mean, I guess I could say for Bruce or for Kermit, depending on how you want to look at it. I mean, it was sort of a service to, uh, I mean, it was really initially a, a, a favor to Bruce, but it turned into this on some level, sort of graduate level course in winemaking because I'm, I was the translator. I was sort of this, you know, no one pays attention to the translator. The producers were focused on Bruce, who basically was the sales manager for their most important export relationship. And that was a big deal. I mean, that was real money and like a major percentage of sales for a lot of these producers. So they were unbelievably forthcoming. And by that point, I was starting to have more of a command and a curiosity of what, you know, how did that taste get there and what are you doing? And so I was able to, I mean, sort of the joke was we would leave these sellers and the proprietor would look at me and say, Bruce asks a lot of technical questions. And I would smile and say, yeah, Bruce is very curious about exactly how, it's very helpful to him to know exactly how you make your wines. And I mean, some of us have smiled about that later in life because I've remained friends with a lot of these people. I mean, they've sent their children to work for me and I've gotten that, you know, 
I always wondered about some of those questions, whether that was Bruce or whether that was just you pumping me for information. I'm going to just go out on a limb and say it was Bruce the whole time. I, I don't know what you're talking about. I, but thank you. Uh, <laughs> it was really beneficial to my upbringing and sort of collective thought process about wine to be exposed to. I mean, it was, you know, from Fudra fermented Pinot Gris in Alsace to whether we were in the Loire or Beaujolais. I mean, I continue to be super inspired by wines like that and really curious about how people do it. And I've done 27 harvests in the Northern Hemisphere and three in the Southern Hemisphere. And I still haven't done all the stuff I want to do. Like I have whole other wine projects lurking in my psyche. I'm going to do the Gamay project and I'm going to do the Shannon plot project. I mean, wines that I drink on a regular basis that I've yet to kind of turn over from pure pleasure of drinking to like, I want to take it to the next level and actually make them and start to understand how they're made. I, you know, not, I always say I, I make American wines, but I'm inspired a lot by what I taste in Europe. Um, and I think if I had to describe my techniques to people, I'm like, I'm an old world technique person operating in the new world. So sometimes the wines aren't as obvious. Um, and I think a lot of it is because of those formative experiences with both drinking European wines and being exposed to the making thereof. You've talked a lot about, you know, some of the people that you talk directly about Syrah with, but I can imagine talking to Koch about Chardonnay or Ravenel about Chardonnay or numerous other people would be, you know, pretty helpful. Oh, I, I mean, th you, you name two of the ones that are probably my I, you know, I wish I had the money to drink more Koch. I, I try to like grind on Bruce every time I see him. Hey, don't forget the bottle of Corton Charlemagne, man. But I mean, those were the wines for me, you know, in the early 90s, drinking California Chardonnay and sort of quizzically saying, you know, it doesn't taste a lot like these other Chardonnays that I really dig. And, you know, the it seems so obvious today, just sort of the way the arc of California winemaking has gone. But at the time it was, I mean, I had the same thing in my mind about Syrah. And uh, I mean, on the Syrah front, I remember distinctly a conversation that I had with Craig Williams. Um, at the time, Phelps was sourcing a lot of Syrah from Calistoga. The Isley Vineyard had Syrah planted. And then there was Syrah planted on the, the home ranch in Spring Valley where the winery was. And Craig sort of in a tutorial sort of professorial way said, well, you know, Aaron, so the deal is the reason we grow Syrah in these places is Syrah likes heat. So think about the Northern Rhone Valley, the Cote Roti, that means roasted slope, cornos, sort of burnt earth and old French. These are hot places. And I sort of, you know, well, oh yeah, sure. I get it. Total. You know, I now understand. And I remember arriving in Cornos. So it was a I can't remember the exact date. It was September of 1992 and I drove into town and it was, you know, it was kind of a warm day. It was like 82 degrees and women were sitting on their front stoops fanning themselves and men were sort of dragging along in their wife beaters. And I made some comment to Jean-Luc as I arrived. He's like, oh yeah, we're having a total heat spell. And I'm thinking to myself, it's 82 degrees. Like this is the coldest day of the summer in Calistoga. And my brain is like, Craig Williams, you, you lied to me, Craig Williams, which, you know, of course he didn't, but it, 
you know, that element of, I think that was my dawning realization of the difference between a warm spot in an otherwise overarchingly cold area and, and the distinction of that between just a warm spot. I mean, a warm area. I mean, they don't have a lot of below ground cellars in Cornod, do they? No, not really. Um, so Clop is kind of below ground. I always, every time I'm in Clop cellar, I'm like, are we under the RN? I'm like, are we under the road? It sure <laughs> seems like when we came down the stairs, we turned left, right? And we went towards the road. And when I walked in, I didn't walk that many. Oh, no, we're not under the road. I'm like, yeah, I think we might be under the road. I don't know. But so, yeah, there, I mean, Claps is underground. I mean, Columbo's original cellar under his house was, I mean, it's basically a basement. But I mean, it's cold there in the winter. It snows. Cornos is a continental place. I mean, it's above the olive oil butter line. It's, it is, it's cold in the winter. It's, it's not, I mean, not to say that it's not warm in the summer. Um, and I almost think on some levels, you know, those continental places need to be warm. I mean, they need to be warm in the summer in order to get things ripe. But, you know, ripeness is that sort of ethereal, non-definable. I mean, ripe here is not ripe there. And uh, the first Syrah that I made under my own label in California was from a little vineyard owned by a guy named Al Rago out on the Sonoma coast called the Kesara Vineyard and 98 vintage. We picked it the first week of November and Al was beside himself. He was so apologetic that he offered to not charge me for the grapes because it was 20.4 bricks when we picked. And he said, I, I'm embarrassed. I'm this, I'm that. I obviously, you can't make wine from that. And I sort of smiled and said, that's like the vintage of the decade in Cornas. <laughs> if you like extrapolate the alcohol on that, I mean, it's low for California. It's like 12, two, but that's like a big deal to get that ripe in Cornas. So again, you, you have to frame the conversation. And I, I think that has been some of the really exciting stuff that's gone on in California over the last 25 years is that that sort of push towards the coast, the expansion of acceptable wine styles. Something else that seems to be really a big part of California of late and the last couple decade and a half is the real search for old vines. And I feel like that was something that really came up at Turley for you. Oh, yeah. Working with vineyards like Hain. And so how did that come around? Like when you were working at those two wineries, kind of splitting your time between the two, what was happening in terms of the vineyard side? I'd come back from France at the offer of Bruce Nyers to become a partner with he and Barbara. It was a sweat equity situation. And, and the deal was we all had our day jobs and Bruce worked for Kermit and Barbara at the time worked for uh, Alice Waters at Chez Panisse. And I kind of fumbled around, bumbled around, ended up getting a job working for John uh, Wetlofer and Helen Turley primarily in their vineyard out on the coast. And that wasn't really a full-time year-round job. And so I would get sent on sort of special projects because Helen was consulting for a number of wineries. And through that connectivity, I showed up at Turley one day um, to do some work. I'd rack a wine. And um, I mean, Larry and I got to talking, which eventually led to my going to work for him full-time as my, that became my day job. 
But, you know, to go back to the old line question, so when I came back to work for Bruce and Barbara, they had planted a portion of the vineyard around their home in Con Valley. So at the time, they had planted Merlot and Cabernet Franc. They eventually planted the, the entire property and, and added Cabernet Sauvignon to that. And they were making Chardonnay and Merlot. Those were the two wines. And Bruce said, is there anything else that you'd like to make? And I said, well, yeah, I'd, I've always liked Zinfandel and Syrah. And he said, great, well, if you can find either one, we'll do it. So I called a friend of mine, a guy that had been the viticulturalist at Joseph Phelps when I worked there, a guy by the name of Marcus Bokish, gone to work for a grapevine nursery called Duarte, which is still one of the biggest suppliers of plant material to vineyards in California. And I called Marcus and I said, I'm looking for Zinfandel and Syrah. And he's like, Syrah, you know, let me think about that. But I know some Zinfandel sites, primarily in this town called Oakley. And I had to take out a map. I had no idea where Oakley was. I'd never heard of it. And he said that, you know, there's some old vines out there. There's some young stuff. I'm going to put you in touch with a couple of people. And I called this guy Rich Pato. And Rich said, I'm under contract with Rosenblum. But you should talk to Kent. You never know. So I called Kent Rosenblum and I explained the situation. And, you know, to Kent's eternal credit, I mean, I think back on this and I'm like, you're a winery, you're a winemaker. And another winemaker calls you and says, hey, can I buy some grapes from you? And I mean, he said, yes. So Nyers got probably three tons of uh, Zinfandel from Rich Pato in uh, 1994. We were making our wines at Rombauer at that time. And I borrowed the Rombauer dump truck and drove down and was sort of popping wheelies coming across the Carquinas Bridge. I was like, I think we maybe have loaded this too far back. And that was the first Zinfandel I made. And, you know, I was occasionally doing some stuff at Turley. And then I ended up going to work for Turley full time. And I said to Larry, I mean, when I started working for Larry, no wine had yet been sold. So the 93 Harvest consisted of three Zinfandels, which was the Aida Vineyard next to the winery, the Hain Vineyard, and the Moore, Bill Moore's Vineyard in Napa on Hagen Road, the Earthquake Vineyard. So some of the best. Right, three of the, the, the truly great. And those were the three Zins, and then Petite Sera also from Hain and Aida, and then Sauvignon Blanc from the, the vineyard around the ranch. And, you know, Larry and I had this conversation, and, you know, in the arc of my coming to work for him, I said, you know, I do make Zinfandel at Nyers. I don't want it to be a problem. Um, uh, there may be more grapes down there. And so Rich Pato introduced Larry and I to a guy named Joe Duarte, who became a major supplier to Turley over the years and introduced us to the Salvador family. And I mean, Larry's still, I mean, this extraordinary old vineyard. I mean, Larry was already engaged in the traffic of old vines because the three vineyards he already had were all old vines. And this just sort of, I said, you know, there's really no young vine stuff down here. Like everything's a hundred years old and it's own rooted and it's really cool. And there's pretty much just Zinfandel and Morved and Carignan. That's the only three things there. And so I didn't in any way, shape or form launch Larry on the old vine thing. It was more of a him saying, I own this winery, Frog's Leap. We made everything, literally. I mean, Frog's Leap was kind of like Phelps. They made Cabernet. They made you know, Bordeaux varietals. 
Germanic varietals, you name it, they made it. And you know, not to put words in anybody's mouth. And I know you've interviewed Larry and, you know, my recollection of what Larry said to me is like, we made all these wines, but what I really liked was Zinfandel and which made total sense to me. And again, it goes back to that point of like, make what you like, be passionate about it. Again, I think of formative, you know, those nuggets of really formative things that don't really, you may not fully appreciate until years later. And you think about it, I mean, Frog's Leap in the 80s was, I mean, it was big. Not that it's not big now, but I mean, for one of the partners to just say, yeah, I'm, I'm done. Buy me out. We're, we're out. I want to do this other thing. And to go down to, I mean, Larry made 800 cases of wine in 1993. I mean, that's a big deal. Um, total switch. Like, I just want to do these things because I love them. So that kind of started the old vine thing. I mean, I, I always say in California, if you're curious about old vines, I mean, you're kind of constricted on what you can do. You make Zinfandel and companion varieties, you know, whether it be Morved or Carignan or Petit Syrah, Alicante. There's just not, you know, scads of 100-year-old Cabernet vineyards hanging out. And there's the random stuff. But I mean, by and large, it's relatively new. And the sort of epiphany moments, I mean, we had vineyard sites at Turley where there were multiple blocks, things had been torn out and replanted. And so you were able to see this arc of, you know, let's say similar genetic material because they were just taking wood from their oldest, most successful blocks and same rootstock because everybody used St. George and you know, similar terroir. I mean, one contiguous piece of property where you're getting fruit and vinifying it separately from a 20-year-old block and a 60-year-old block and an 80-year-old block and a 110-year-old block, and you sort of say, aha, yeah, that's there are substantive differences along the way that, I mean, I find it to be the most compelling and exciting thing about the future of all the other varietals that have since been planted in California, which is, again, not to in any way, shape, or form negate the quality of the wines we're currently making, but just in the back of my mind to know that you know, 50 years from now, they'll be even better. I mean, A, we're, we'll have 50 years of experience under our belt, but there's something about vine age that's just not, you can't mimic it through any process. It just is. And when they get older, they get better. You know, to a point, I would say there are others that would say, well, yeah, but if it's virus, and, and I, yep, I agree with you. It has to be a healthy, you know, semi-vigorous vineyard in order to make that happen. But I mean, it's an undeniable reality that those old sites are extraordinary. And, you know, my, my thing is, as I worked at Turley over time, there's, there is an element to consider, which is a, a lot of these vineyards were planted in a period of time where people had very little technology compared to what they have today. They didn't have drain tile. They didn't have drip irrigation. They didn't have frost protection of the sort that exists today. And so their site selection was more limited and more thoughtful. If you were to take someone from 1880 and forward them to today, they would look around whatever valley you're in, Napa, Sonoma, Central Valley, and say, how are you growing grapes there? Like, we tried to grow grapes there and it rotted because we didn't have access to the, you know, the ability to control mildew or uh, that's a frost pocket. It got torched three years out of five. It's not worth doing it. Or it's how are you keeping the vines alive? Because Where's the water coming from? So all these old vineyards sit in these very privileged spots, that kind of the Goldilocks zone of, you know, it's 
not too rocky. The soil's not too heavy. It's just right. It's well-drained enough and yet has enough material in the soil to sustain a vine. And on top of that, then you had prohibition when everybody had to sort of say, okay, so how are we going to live? We're going to tear out vineyards and depending on where you were, maybe you planted prunes or walnuts or apples. And in all of these instances, you see why that vineyard stayed. Like, yeah, I have a hundred acres and I'm going to tear out 80 acres of vineyard, but I just can't bring myself to tear out that block because it's the best, clearly the best we have. So you had this double trial by fire with these old sites that people don't think about. Like that's, that's a powerful thing. Through the crucible. A total crucible. So the fact that these vines are still here is huge. And so they're sort of pre-selected for this amazing site, which, you know, modernity being what it is, we don't look at land in the same way today that people looked at land a hundred years ago because we have access to other things. We can, you know, bring a D9 in and rip it and we can put in a wind machine and we, all those things. And I'm not saying they're bad. They're just not, you know, my bent is sort of, you know, what would they have done a hundred years ago? You know, in some instances, it's, they would have grown apples. They would have grown prunes. Grapes wouldn't have been on the, the top 10 things to grow here. So that to me is the excitement of old vines. That coupled just the depth, the complexity, the the ability of an old vine to sort of self-meter where they grow out to a certain shoot length and there's the right amount of fruit and you're not actually doing a lot of manipulation. Their, their economy of motion, and I know it's a plant, it's not a human being, but there is an economy of motion in old vineyards where they just you know, young vineyards are super vigorous and you're out there hedging and there's a boatload of fruit and the vitality is pulsing through them. And old vineyards are not that way. They're just this sort of subtle, reserved, they're just sitting there, big, hulking, going, yep, 1.2 tons to the acre, baby. That's all I can do this year. So they're powerful. I mean, I if someone said to me, you get to do one thing in the wine industry, it would be prune old vineyards. It's just one of those sort of Zen moments and you're out there and you're thinking about who's the president of the United States in 1894? What was going on economically? Where did these grapes go? What wine was made from them? You know, did someone make a nickel a bottle? Was it 20 cents? I mean, just that sort of, and, and you're looking at the plant and looking at all these cut marks because you can see them all and there's a hundred years of pruning. And, you know, the guy that was doing this a hundred years ago has been dead for 60 years. I, I find that to be a very powerful thing. You know, the, the rhythmic nature of the wine business is, is the fun part for me on a lot of levels. I can see how also when you're dealing with dry farming like that, you, you really are fundamentally dealing with a deeper root system, right? You are. And I mean, I, again, I go back to, you know, the nature of thinking about things that have influenced me. And, and I mean, Larry Turley was an early and active proponent of organic farming. And I think that went back to his days of working with John Williams and they had a consultant, a guy by the name of Amigo Bob, Bob Cantisano, who's one of sort of the pillars of organic farming in California. And, you know, he was just kind of hanging out hippie from the foothills talking about how you might want to farm your vineyards as an alternative to a more chemically driven 
situation. And, you know, it resonates, especially when you're farming an old vineyard and you think, right, like they didn't have access. The, the old timers had no access to systemic fungicides and Roundup and all those things. And these vineyards lasted this long. You know, will a modern vineyard that has all these synthetic chemicals being applied to it, d- does it even have a chance of lasting this long? And so that was a, I mean, I think organic farming and beyond is really the the wave of the future for really uh, the high end of the California wine industry. I'm powerfully convinced of it. I live in the middle of one of my vineyards and people say, well, you know, why do you farm organically? And I'm like, because I live in the middle of one of my vineyards and I want to be an old man. And, you know, y- you don't need this stuff. People have farmed grapes successfully for thousands of years without all these things. And, and frankly, I truly believe that we really don't know what the effects of some of these products are on the environment, on the, the I mean, there's a lot of research about the negative impacts, you know, and really, do you want to be growing grapes where they shouldn't be growing? I mean, that's the other thing for me, just like aside from let's take systemic fungicides and their your feeling about them, like grapes weren't designed to grow here because grapes don't naturally grow where they rot. That's not an effective mechanism for a plant to replicate itself, um, is to have the fruit rot and fall off. So, you know, again, you go to France and it's a big country and there are zones. And I mean, Cornos was one of those zones where you grow grapes here and there you grow apricots and over there you grow cherries because that's too heavy a soil for grapes. And if you grow them there, they rot. Now, in the modern era, could you grow grapes there? Sure, absolutely. No problem. Are you, you know, if you're brutally honest with yourself and your seller, are the wines from those sites as good as the sites up on the hill? And the answer is no way. So why beat your head against the, the wall? I mean, just grow apricots, which most of the people did. It was this, the, the rhythmic nature of harvest. You harvested apricots, then you harvested cherries, then you harvested grapes, and then you were done. Well, what was it like working for Helen Turley, speaking of... Uh... Of harvesting grapes, I, I to this day probably would say Helen is one of the most extraordinarily perceptive palates I've ever been around. I mean, she was a visionary human being. I she shaped a lot of stuff in California. I mean, whether it be starting Peter Michael off on their arc, certainly her brother. I mean, Colgan. Palmeyer. I mean, Randy had made the Palmeyer wines to begin with. So, I mean, I think credit goes both ways there. But my perception on Helen after, you know, being at Turley for 20 odd years was, you know, the description would be, you know, so much of winemaking is sort of this envelope. You're within the envelope. And I think Helen's thing, what, what Helen on a personal level did for me and I think on a greater level for the wine industry is like Helen like blew right through the envelope <laughs> like what envelope like you guys are all ridiculous there's no envelope there we're going over here and I think it's important sometimes to go outside the envelope and say you know you you can exist out here that's not really a hard boundary and you know I, th- I think you take with every experience, there are the things that you look at and say, I want to do that. And there are things that you look at and say, that's not for me. I get that it works. And 
what will I be eternally grateful to Helen John about introducing me to the Sonoma Coast? Right. Because, I mean, that's where you have- That's where I found it. I mean, I, would, I didn't know anything about that part of the world. I worked for them at their vineyard. I lived in a tent. And I tried the first vintage of the Marcusan Estate Chardonnay and Pinot Noir were made at her brother's at Larry's place. And I remember trying those wines. This would have been the fall of 94. Um, and it wasn't a lot. There was like a barrel and a half of Chardonnay. And I remember thinking, I mean, I've been in Kosha's cellar before. Like these wines are legit. These are, I mean, legit in a way that I really haven't tried a lot of wines of this ilk. I had to call a real estate broker. My mom's a real estate broker. And, you know, that was my, my thought was when wines like this begin to get into the public psyche, people like me won't be able to afford land here for long. And I started looking for property like immediately after that and ultimately found a piece of property and acquired it. And, and I mean, today have about 12 acres of vineyard out there on the same ridgeline. You know, that's a powerful thank you. You know, I think California winemaking in general owes a pretty, I mean, Helen's a very influential human being, I think, on a lot of levels, whether it be Napa Cabernet and whether you agree stylistically with what she does or not, it was a dominant style for a period of time. And I think anytime you have a dominant style, there's, you know, people that embrace it, people that say, that's not for me, I want to go the other way. And so if you dig what you're doing and you can sell it, good for you. And uh, I mean, I would certainly say they've succeeded mightily on all those accounts. So Sonoma Coast, I mean, you know, she and others had really already blazed the trail for Chardonnay and Pinot out there, but you decided also to plant Syrah along with those two on that property. Yeah. So we um, obviously farm Chardonnay and Pinot Noir at Helen's place. And when I acquired first piece, I, I was able to acquire two contiguous pieces of property, one in 95 and one in 97. And I mean, other than a very small amount of Zinfandel, which was planted at the Bohan ranch, which, so Mick Bowen was the first person to plant grapes out there, period. Uh, he then convinced his buddy, George Charles to plant grapes. So George Charles is um, Carolyn Martinelli's father. Uh, so this would be Lee Martinelli senior's father-in-law who had a multi-thousand acre, uh, original land grant that goes back to the 1860s. He was a, sh uh, you know, the family did and a sheep farmer. And so he had the one crazy neighbor, Mick Bowen, who somehow got, you know, was down at the hardware store and someone said, you know, this grape thing is going off and he planted some grapes and it worked. And then George Charles planted some grapes, which is the Martinelli Charles Ranch Chardonnay to this day. And then David Hirsch and then Flowers and then Marcusan. And I mean, the funny thing is I can still name every single vineyard out there really rapidly. There still aren't many. I mean, it's just, you got the first ridge and the second ridge and then up on Tin Barn, there's a few more, but I mean, first and second ridge, there's just not a lot there. Helen and John were, I mean, they had planted meter by meter Chardonnay and Pinot Noir and it, you know, they were super cutting edge, you know, so that, that vein was, was, I don't want to say it was fully explored, but it was certainly being explored. And I had this crazy idea that all the Syrahs that I had heretofore tried in California seemed to be growing in areas that created wines that were not 
lining up with my vision of what I saw in France, seemingly too warm. I mean, areas that, I mean, it's not that they didn't produce great wines, but they produced more powerful kind of monolithic versions of Syrah. I mean, Syrah is sort of the great chameleon. You can grow it in the Barossa and make these big, powerful wines, and you do so in California quite effectively. And when you get into conversing about Syrah with the average wine drinker and start talking about ethereal and lacy, and people sort of look at you like, I think you're talking about the wrong thing. I'm like, no, no, you got to try Cote Roti. It's, I mean, it literally, these wines are, they're ethereal. And I mean, my supposition, and I mean, I, supposition is probably too mild a word. I mean, I was convinced that it was a, a climate thing. I mean, I lived in Kornos for two years. It's cold there. It's not as warm as everybody thinks. So if I'm out on the coast, why not grow a little Syrah? So I planted some. And I, I remember actually having dinner with Walt and Joan Flowers, who we all kind of grew up in the same neighborhood. Joan Flowers was actually literally from a town 20 minutes away from where I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. And Walt was from Philadelphia. But um, you know, they were out there. I was out there. It's kind of a random place to have a couple of people from PA trying to grow grapes. And um, I remember Walt getting like vaguely irritated. Like, you can't grow Syrah here. I'm like, well, I mean, you can't is one of those like, are you like, are you, how, uh, yeah, I can. <laughs> like, how, what do you mean I can't grow Syrah? He's like, we can't get it ripe. And I said, well, ripe is such a relative term. I mean, how do you define ripe? Like 25 bricks? Is that, I mean, I don't aspire to get it to 25. Like I'm stoked with 22. I actually think I could probably get it riper than that given what I know about this area versus, you know, some other cooler areas. And, you know, I, I would say people have affirmed that over time. I mean, Nick and Andy Pay have planted Syrah in an area that's much cooler than uh, where I grow it. My favorite wine from them. Oh, yeah. I And so my, you know, I, I buy grapes from them. I don't buy Syrah, but I do buy Pinot Noir. And obviously I grow Pinot where I am and I buy Pinot from David Hirsch and also from the Bowens. And I, I mean, the extrapolation of Pinot Noir is their site's two weeks behind our site-ish, 10 days, two weeks. So the Syrah thing would hold. So, I mean, a cooler site. You know, I think about some of the Syrahs that Pax has made and, and the Arno Roberts winery has made from much, much colder sites. And so I think that has been completely validated. I mean, I have like, I've never had a problem getting Syrah ripe at my place. Uh, even, I mean, 2011, I have two different blocks of Syrah. I have one that's a, a more tightly spaced kind of homage to what I was doing, the vineyards I was working in in France, which is meter by meter uh, planting that um, sort of really rocky outcropping uh, hill uh, or sort of promontory on the property that had I planted it as I did the rest of the property, which is a three by six spacing, it, the turnaround lanes for the tractor would have chewed up half the block. And I just like, let's plant it meter by meter. <laughs> we'll farm it by hand. So in terms of the planning, no, I mean, Helen Turley and John Whitelaffer had worked a lot with David Abreu. And so what were you thinking when you laid out your thing? Did that have any uh, influence on what you were up to? And You know, my, my planting of my ranch was more rudimentary than I think what you would see going on in Napa in as much as basically I was kind of borrowing equipment from Turley and... You know, in terms of the 
you know, the modern thinking on layout, I, I'm, I was like fall line, like take a beach ball and let it go. And whichever way it rolls, that's the row orientation. So my row, I mean, now if you go to Napa, people will say, you know, you want to be 17 degrees off magnetic north, which is true north in our part of the world. And everything, you know, sort of in the pursuit of the most efficient photosynthetic engine you can create, which certainly in my in the Sonoma Coast, that's an important thing to consider. You know, there are other important things that go along with that too, which is sort of the lay of the land and are you going to terrace? And by going on the fall line, there's no terracing. So my meter by meter block is actually a north facing, sort of northeast facing block. The other Syrah block is a pure, more pure east to southeast facing. So two different soil types. Uh, they're very close to one another, but that, that's sort of the nature of the Sonoma Coast. If you think of the faulting action of the San Andreas, where geologically you lay down layers and then through faulting and subduction, those layers are turned on their side and then they're weathered by being in more or less a temperate rainforest, which is what we are there. So you get these radical soil differences, like multi-million year soil difference over very brief periods of space where, I mean, you think of Burgundy and it's basically one thing that's been uplifted, but it hasn't been turned on its side and weathered. So you can get an entire lens of limestone-based soils across a wide area where that doesn't happen on the Sonoma Coast. That's that's not the case. So, I mean, I have this sort of angular red volcanic rock in the meter by meter and you move 200 yards to the north and it's a pure Gold Ridge loam, which is a sandy clay loam. Uh, I mean, a classic West Sonoma County soil. But so, yeah, I, I planted these two blocks and kind of, you know, in the beginning, I mean, I I don't want to say I didn't think much about it, but I mean, it's like I did it. It seemed like the logical thing to do. I want to make Syrah. I'm, I'm, um, where did you get the material? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, was it Estrella River or? Uh, well, I would say I have all the things that interested me planted there. I do have Estrella River. Um, uh, I've got some stuff from Hudson, which was really Phelps, which was really wood that came in from the Northern Rhone in the 50s. I have some Shiraz number one, and then I've got this whole group of cuttings that I'm, I just don't remember how they got to the country, but (laughs) they were suddenly found and um, they had markings on them indicating that they might have come from uh, Noel Versailles vineyard in Renard and the Shaw Vineyard and perhaps some selections from Cote Roti and a couple other spots that I got excited about. And anyway, um, so I've got some unusual stuff. I mean, John Alban was doing some work. I We traded wood. So, you know, a lot of, I would call them heritage, massal selection stuff. And, you know, if you, just on the clonal front, again, you go back in time and think about winemaking and you know there was a giant push to take heat treated material and kind of promulgate it in the US and so what had been uh wenty chardonnay shot wenty i mean this sort of vaguely virused really tiny cluster hens and chicks um 
low yielding clone, if you apply, I can't remember the exact numbers, but basically you take wood and you put it in an oven and cook it at 135 degrees for two hours, out comes clone four, which is the largest, you know, the, the most widely planted Chardonnay clone in California, very productive. You've kind of cooked the virus out of it, but not killed it. And it's you know, big clusters, very robust. And Again, I always look at it and say it just depends on what you're doing. I mean, if you want to make high-end wine, I don't know that Clone 4 is the greatest thing to grow. But if you're selling grapes to a big winery and you're a farmer, then sure. Um, you know, the, the other thing I will say about Clone versus Selection, to me personally, over time is, and, and this is kind of informed by my time at Turley, and you know, I think Clones, and I mean, I've I've said this before, like clones are a conversation of young vineyards. There's a point where the site like dominates and the vine age begins to dominate. And so, you know, I don't want to throw like clone four Chardonnay under the bus. I've actually made really, really, I mean, for me personally, wines that I think are some of the best wines I've made from clone four Chardonnay. Now it was older. It was on a rocky site. It may not have expressed itself in the same way, but I still think there's that element of at some point, like clone fades away. It's not about the clone. It's about that interface of vine and root and site. And, you know, I, I sometimes think that, again, it's one of those, would that wine that I really liked that I made from clone four have been better if it was Wenty? Maybe. I, that, that, that's actually an argument that I would, you know, I don't plan any clone four. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think if you talk to Clap and say, you know, so what about clone 99 Syrah? Because he planted a little bit and he was always like, God, a mistake that was you know but i think there's that element of susceptibility of people that don't necessarily know any better and suddenly you've got some guy with a doctorate in plant pathology saying oh my gosh what you really need to do is grow this because you're that's virus and it's bad and okay and you plant it but it you know empirically over time you're like but it's just well my stuff my old stuff may be virus but it makes better wine so you know i think california went through this sort of clone craze and i think now that's again i i would say it depends on what you're doing with it and i don't plant that anymore i don't plant things like that anymore i would prefer to plant massal selections Yes, there are. When you get into these massal selections, there are vines that are troubled and probably shouldn't be replicated, which when you think about Pinot Noir, you get into the Swan clone. And you know, I always say Swan clone. It's really the Swan selection. Joe Swan was taking wood from various vineyards in Burgundy and bringing it back. And the key with Swan is to say, well, where'd you get it from? Because Tom Dellinger went and took Swan from Joe's Vineyard in, in year X. I don't know exactly when it was. Call it the you know the mid '80s. But Joe was out there. Joe Swan was out there like whacking the heads off of vines and saying, "I don't like that. I'm going to take this over." So his own selection was changing constantly. If Tom Dellinger goes and takes a selection, he's not taking wood from every single vine. So he's selecting from a selection. So there's that element of where to come from. Calera is another famous selection. And again, it goes to the which Calera? Uh, Mount Eden's another famous one. And I remember the winemaker for Mount Eden went out to Hirsch and David said, This is my Mount Eden block. And he said, I don't recognize that as, you know, either uh, ampelographically or cluster morphology having anything to do with what we grow at Mount Eden. 
but it's just because David had selected from a selection and then continued to refine his selection to the point where it's unrecognizable. So, I mean, that's kind of the fun of it all, I think. And so once you get the material into the winery in terms of the, you know, the grapes, mm. what did you do with Syrah? Because I feel like, you know, the playbook when you got started there was still uh, kind of an open, open question for that grape variety. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you arc across a selection of domestic Syrahs, it's still an open question. I mean, I, I don't want to say it's an open question. I think it's, there are ways, some people go this way, some people go that way. So I was influenced by the use of whole cluster that I saw when I was in France, uh, you know, Noel Versailles especially. And so my ability to experiment with Syrah before I had fruit from my own property goes back to Nyers. So we were buying Syrah from Lee Hudson starting in 1995, and we did a lot of experimenting. We said, all right, well, let's take all this stuff, and we're going to de-stem part, and we're going to do 25% whole cluster and 50% whole cluster and 75% whole cluster and 100% whole cluster. And again, everyone has their takeaway from those experiments, and what I found was it's all or nothing. The rest of it was uninteresting to me. It was like muddled and weird. And so that's my take. And again, it's all perception. So I'm like, you're either all in or don't do it. Don't kind of nibble at the edge because you won't like the result. I mean, I didn't like the results and it took me a couple vintages of doing it and going, aha, okay, we're not doing that anymore. We'll de-stem some and we'll do whole cluster. And, you know, depending on the wine we're making, we've got those, those elements. And so when it came to making my own wine, which, so I had 95 and 96 and 97, where we were vinifying wines, um, you know, a fair amount of Syrah and Ayers. Uh, come 98 vintage, when I made my own Syrah, again, the K Syrah vineyard to start, that was uh, 98. And then I did K Syrah and had a small amount of estate Syrah in 99 and then more in 2000. And I mean, that was, we were off to the races at that point. Um, the estate straws have been 100% whole cluster the entire time. You know, we achieve a degree, and and what I would say in California is, depending on where you grow straw, I mean, you have differing levels of physiological ripeness. So there are places where I think straw grows really successfully, where you look at the rachis and you're like, this is really electric green. Maybe it's not the site to do whole cluster. Um, it just causes a lot of other things to go on in the wine. Whereas if you're out on the coast and you're like, wow, this is really lignified. Maybe this is the site where we can really have whole cluster sing in the wine. And so, again, I mean, I think whole cluster is one of those things. You've got to be pragmatic. It's not dogmatic. It's <laughs> like do what makes sense for your site. I don't sit there and say only great Syrah comes from whole cluster. That's like saying only great Pinot Noir comes from whole cluster ferments. I mean, there's – talk to the guys at Dujac. Like do you destem or not? Well, it depends. Of course it does. It depends on the year. Like you're, oh, that's your job. You're the winemaker. You have to make those calls. And, you know, year in and year out, by and large, it seems like at my ranch on the coast, we're getting that physiological ripeness that allows us, you know, allows me to say, yeah, we're going to do a whole cluster 100%. And is that because you're above the cloud line? I think in that neighborhood, I mean, the general, if you, if you talk to everybody out there and said, you know, give me the number. What's the number you got to be above to grow grapes? And I think it's about a thousand feet. It would be the, the the general consensus on the first and second ridges. And you know, at that number, it's not that you're always above the fog, but you're above the fog enough to get grapes ripe. Below that, eh, maybe there's some spots that 
we're going to find that little finger that sticks off this way that, yeah, you can do it. But I mean, by and large, thousand feet's the number. So you're influenced by it. You see it, you smell it. I mean, there are mornings where you're in it, but it burns off pretty quickly or retreats downward pretty quickly. Uh, so that's sort of the scene out there. Every site's different. I love the aromatics that you get. I mean, I, I had, I've had conversations with people about these wines. And I would say people that are much more learned about chemistry and winemaking than me. You know, when you do whole cluster, you have relatively high pH. I mean, technically speaking, unstable wines. And yet the tannin that you get out of the stems creates a sense not only of acidity, but also of stability. And not, not a sense of stability. Like the wines are actually stable. And, uh, I was tasting with Steve Tanzer one time years ago, and I have a great deal of respect for Steve and our palates kind of line up. He loves Sterling. There are certain writers where I, you know, I've tasted with them enough to know, like, they're going to like this better than this. My personal preference is here. If I'm reading a review of Beaujolais or Burgundy, Steve's one of those guys where with he liked it, I knew I would like it. And we were talking about Syrah specifically and, and acid and tannin, and we got into this. This was a, a Nyers wine. And, you know, on some level, I think he made the comment, like, the way this wine moves across my palate, the acidity, the presence. And I just said, you know, I agree with you. And yet the weird thing is this wine has a pH of like 4.4. 4. I mean, technically speaking, talk to a chemist, talk to a, a winemaker with a master's degree in chemistry. They'll tell you this wine is impossible. Like, this shouldn't exist. And it will probably turn brown and, you know, explode in like 10 seconds. So move away. And he, uh, he was so fascinated by it. He, and he was doing a lecture in South Africa and he took a case with him and with a group of, you know, thoughtful winemakers. And he was like, yeah, one guy like took a, demanded the, the remainder of the bottle. Like, this is not possible. Took it back to his lab, like ran the numbers, left the bottle open on the counter. And the next day I was like, you know, so I don't know. I'm not a chemist. I just know that you do a whole cluster, you get higher pHs, and some people freak out, and then like, oh, like, oh, we gotta add acid. I'm like, no, no, don't do anything. Don't touch it. It's perfect just the way it is. Try these Northern Rhone wines; they're okay. I mean, one thing that I heard about the Northern Rhone and whole cluster, whether it's true, I don't know, but people said, look, uh, you know, one of the advantages of using 100% whole cluster is that you change the pH and then that red wine has a better chance of going through mallow. Sure. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I think of, so here's an, a, an interesting sort of, if you want to extrapolate it to Pinot Noir. So if I'm talking to say Sashi Mormon and Raj Parr about Domaine de la Cote, where they're using more or less a hundred percent whole cluster. And I look at the nature of the raw material that they have I totally embrace that because their native pHs are so low that that whole cluster, it's doing exactly that. It's like lifting the pH enough. They have very different soil types there than we have on the North Coast. I mean, the North Coast is volcanic. It's super acidic in nature. And then you have this inverse relationship with the pH in the, the finished wine. Acidic soils create basic wines. And if you think about it, limestone soils, super basic. I mean, limestone has got a pH of nine and you're creating these wines of great acidity and cut. So, you know, that's the, I always say, you know, go to the old world and think about what they're, you know, why are they doing it and, you know, to what end? And you're exactly right with Syrah. I mean, that was part of the deal. Uh, when you're picking Syrah, 
20 bricks in the Northern Rome Valley, they tend to be really acidic. So if you do a whole cluster, that allows you to achieve biological stability in, in a way that you might not otherwise have. And I, in my mind, say, right. And if you go back 100 years, people didn't have destemmers anyway. So it's all this sort of symbiotic process that evolved over time to make stable products that, you know, could they articulate that to you in 1930 in Kornos? No way. I mean, not at all. It's just you did it because. I mean, I remember being up in the vineyard one day, just hand hoeing, and the, the neighbor was like, what are you doing? Like, I'm hoeing the vineyard. And he's like, well, why, why would you ever do that today? It's like, today's a bad day. And I mean, he was alluding to sort of the Steiner-esque. I mean, this was a 90-year-old man. I mean, he would never have quoted Rudolf Steiner, but it's kind of what Steiner was writing about. Like, we're losing touch with this guy was like, whoa, what are you doing? You know, uh, let's see, rainy day where I'm like, well, we're going to go rack the wine. And the other neighbor's like, why would you ever do that? Like, you don't want to rack the wine. I'm like, you know, that one's a little more easy to explain, which is rain is low pressure, low pressure, the leaves are up, like you rack with the north wind, period, end of conversation. And that's old knowledge. I tend to say, I follow old knowledge. It's a logical thing. People were more connected with the universe back then. We lose connectivity. That's what Steiner wrote about, the loss of connectivity due to mechanization and all these other things. Interestingly, you know, uh, we're thinking about schools for my kid, mm -hmm. and uh, we went to the Steiner School, and they did not serve biodynamic wine at the parents' conference. That's I, I was, a little upsetting. I was a little, uh, you know, I, well, you know, you might consider Montessori because the Steiner and Maria Montessori were contemporaries, so they actually have very similar educational philosophies. I, uh, my mother is a Montessori teacher. I am a product of Montessori, so that that, uh, that, but they really were. They were contemporaries, and they had very similar thought processes when it came to educating children. Montessori school is also several blocks closer to my house, which is going to probably end up ruling out as the, uh, the reason why we chose that one. <laughs> there you go. So as we saw the light on that subject, one of the things that's really stood out for me in the Sonoma Coast, like standing in Hirsch, standing in meter by meter, is like the luminosity feels yeah. different there than other places. Yeah. Oh, I mean, David Hirsch would talk about that a lot. It's He was the first one that really kind of drew my attention to that thought it is there's a different light there there's no question about it i don't know if it's the refraction of the sun off the water molecules that tend to be lurking right below you i mean if you think about like being on the water or being on the snow and how you can get a sunburn on you know the bottom of your chin because you're getting all this refracted sunlight and if you're sitting on a vineyard that's kind of right at the top of the cloud layer and here's the sun and it's ricocheting it's not just hitting you from above it's actually bouncing up from this fog layer below oh absolutely plus i mean sort of the cleanliness of the air when you're really close to the water that sort of ozone effect i mean it smells different if you spend a lot of time there and then you go somewhere else you're like oh no there's a very distinct smell out by the water and it's you can smell the ocean a freshness you know, something else that seems to have a, a different smell depending on what you're dealing with in the situation is stems. Like, I, I find different smelling stems based on grape variety and, and obviously ripeness. But, like, Viognier stems are so different than Syrah stems. But you, then, you know, then it turns out that sometimes they're together. Right. You know, so it's interesting to me. Well, and I mean, it's their different plant. And, you know, I think there's some element of... um 
again, this goes back to the sort of the old timey nature of winemaking. And there's certain grape varieties that at some point along the way, people said, you know, I don't really like the taste of these stem things. We need to figure out a way to get rid of them. And that probably happened in areas where stems were less interesting. You know, and you think about the way winemaking technology has evolved and then it spreads. And so if it's good in Bordeaux, which, you know, Cabernet tends to be a more vegetal varietal. So compounding that with stems is probably not a great idea. And suddenly Bordeaux explodes and I'm thinking, you know, back in time and it becomes this economic powerhouse and everyone else looks over and says, well, geez, I mean, if they look at what it did for them, maybe we ought to do that. So then it, it spreads that way. And whereas it might not have necessarily been the thing, you know, who knows whether that would have evolved naturally in a given area had it not evolved in Bordeaux. And, you know, there was more money in Bordeaux. There was, they were exporting wine. It was uh, a different type of farming, much larger estates. I mean, there's estates in Bordeaux that are bigger than Cornas. It's just, you know, it, a different type of farming. I mean, you're farming flatter, more alluvial land. Not that it's bad land. It's just different land than vertical slopes where you're having to build walls to retain stuff. And I mean, much more brutal farming in the Rhone Valley. So, I, you know, that's kind of my take on it. I agree with you. I mean, there's even within the same grape variety, stems taste really different based on where you're growing them. You know, and that's the point for me about sort of the dogmatic approach of, well, I like coat roti and therefore I will use 100% whole cluster. I'm like, I don't know if that's really an effective way to approach it because you're not in coat roti. I mean, I think it's an effective way to approach it in coat roti or cornas, but, you know, if you're in California, I think it's important to be, my thing is I want to be a student. I, I continue to you, know, you would ask me the influences in my life, and you know I can point to a lot of different people along the way, and some of them are less obvious than others. And um, I mean, I've had a lot of people that I've had the pleasure of working with who have gone on to make their own wines who I get influenced by. I mean, I'm constantly Tegan would love to hear that. So <laughs> yeah, Tegan Pasolak was one of the you know the, the he he's one of those guys. Uh, I mean, he altered. Turley, and I don't say that in a negative way. I mean, people would come up to me and say, you know, you've changed the style. And I'm like, well, I would disagree with you. I think we've become better farmers. And a result, as a result of that, the wines are changing, you know, and a lot of that nod goes to Tegan. And it's, you know, you set something in motion and Larry sets it in motion and I take the ball and run with it for a while. And Tegan's like, whoa, guys, go come over here, check out, you know, and, and he goes and takes it to another level. And I mean, that's the cool part of working with talented people. And I've had the great pleasure of, you know, working for talented people and working with talented people and having them work for me and having them leave and go do their own thing. And my thing is, it's kind of that Angelo San Giacomo thing way back when, like pay it forward. And I would say Larry Turley is a big proponent of that. I mean, Larry let let me make the Fela wines at Turley for a decade. I mean, that's a you know, think about that in the modern Napa Valley. The winery owner says to the winemaker, "Oh yeah, make your wines here for for no charge." I mean, that's huge. So I sort of carry that forward and. Have all I mean anyone that works for me is, that wants to make their own wine? I'm excited for them. I'm fascinated to watch what they do. You know, I learn stuff. Like I wouldn't have done that, but huh? What's some examples of that? 
I think about Hardy Wallace fermenting semion in a bin, treating it as if it were a red wine. I'm like, you're a wacko, man. You scare me. Put that outside. And, uh, you know, but I'm also smart enough to come back and try it. I'm like, huh, that's pretty interesting. And, you, you know, where that influence came from, it wasn't from me. He did, that was not something that I... You weren't he the Semyon guy. <laughs> right. He didn't see it at me. I'm not the Semyon guy. And yet I'm smart enough to watch it and be like, wow, that that's good. That's really interesting. And we now are doing a lot of skin contact, whether it be maceration pre-press or actual fermentation of whites on the skins. I mean, I sort of see one thing and say, well, let's see if we could take that to every eventual endpoint, which one is most interesting? Not to credit Hardy with this, but I do feel that in the last, I don't know, five years of tasting Fela for me, I feel like the part that's improved the most is the white wines, the Chardonnays. I actually really like making Chardonnay. And as we moved into the new facility, so, I mean, I made my wines at Turley from uh, 98 to 2007, and then we moved into the new facility. And that began the process of sort of the expansion of our white wine situation and my ability to do other things. So, I mean, you know, we're, we've got Austrian oak fudras and, and terracotta vessels, and you just have more time in your own facility. We can run it through the destemmer and let it, you know, Chardonnay sit for 12 hours or six hours and then press it and sort of see what that skin hold does. And, you know, those are the kind of things that I like to play around with. I mean, the egg thing started, gosh, I mean, it was interesting. I got to think about it because I was, uh, Hardy and Angela Osborne came to work for me when I say harvest of 2010, maybe. And they had been at Selenia and Selenia had eggs and they were for sale and I already had eggs and I was like, I'll take a couple more of those. I have a client that wants one. And so, you know, overcame all these eggs in addition to the ones I already had. I bought two eggs, I think, to start, did one round of ferments and said, yep, we need more of these. We're now going to need one egg for every single vineyard wine we make because I like that. I want an, a small egg for every single vineyard Chardonnay that exists. And, you know, that has morphed into I want not just one egg for every single vineyard Chardonnay, but I also want a couple of 500 liter barrels, maybe three. It depends on the site. Thousand liter Fudra is pretty amazing. If I have enough wine to do some of it in Fudra, yes, for sure. Yes, I still want barriques. You know, over time they've changed and morphed and they're not all the same. I mean, there are some sites that really demand more concrete than others and some that demand more barrique and depends on the, the site. And I, I mean, I love having the toolkit that allows you to, I mean, the way I think about it is when you're in France, you're dealing typically in a small domain with a really tight group of vineyards. It's not like people are hauling grapes from all over the place, you know, and I'm making wine from the Santa Rita Hills up to Oregon. So having a different toolkit is maybe more important where we are than it is if you're vinifying six parcels of Cornos. And, and not to diminish six parcels of Cornos, it's just, you know, semi-homogenous soil and microclimate. Whereas the Pinot Noir that I get from Domaine de la Cote is very different than the Pinot Noir that I get from David Hirsch. And they don't necessarily need to be handled in the same way. So one thing that still seems in the future is that kind of like 
market triumph of California Syrah. And it seems like the quality of the wines has been there for a while, but hasn't really come through in the same way that Chardonnay, Cabernet, Pinot have all come through at different times. Merlot had a moment. Sauvignon Blanc did fairly well. So why not? And is it going to happen? No, no way. Um, (laughs) is my general take on it. Um, the way I would describe it is this, I'm not saying that there aren't great Syrahs made in California. I think they're awesome Syrahs made. I mean, there's quite a few people doing really cool things. So Syrah suffers from sort of bipolarness in the sense of there's really two distinctive styles of Syrah and they're really different and people that like one totally don't get the other and vice versa. And the other thing that I always go back to, so this is probably maybe 19, late 90s, early 2000s, and Bruce and I were kind of in the heyday of our Syrah production at Nyers, and he came back from a sales trip and just kind of said, you know, I think we may be at the apex of the volume of Syrah we should make. And I think we were making 2,500 cases of Syrah in addition to Chardonnay and Merlot and Cabernet. And um, I said, well, you know, you're the national sales manager for Kermit Lynch. How much Syrah do you sell from the Northern Rhone in a given year? And he looked at me and said, Big Parker year? I'm like, yeah, Big Parker year. And he said, oh, you know, 1,800 cases. And that was this like, right, Syrah is, and not to say I don't like Syrah, but I think Syrah is like, it's like a wine geek wine. The people that really groove on Syrah are not, there's not a lot of us. And there's enough of us. I mean, certainly you look at the prices of Northern Rhone wines and they're wonderfully, you know, they've become wonderfully elevated for those producers that have succeeded and um, all, you know, honor to the hard work that they do. But, you know, on a lot of levels, I could make a very strong argument that the Schaub family is farming way more difficult vineyards than anybody in Burgundy ever farms. And yet their wines, uh, which you could easily make the argument that they're at the apex of the appellation they're in. And it's a very age-worthy appellation with a very long history. And yet they sell for some fraction of what Burgundy sells for. Well, there's a reason. It's just there's not that many people that groove on Syrah. So do I think it's going to overtake Cabernet? No way. No, 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 no. And I mean, I've had really funny conversations with friends who are you know, new to the business that maybe have, uh, I can think of one individual in particular that bought a piece of land and called me and said, you know, we bought this land and what should we grow? And I said, Cabernet. And there was this long pause. They're like, why? Well, I didn't really expect that uh, answer from you. And I said, are you going to make wine or sell grapes? Oh, no, we're going to sell grapes. I'm like, Cabernet, why would you? I mean, I'm glad to walk you down the road of Syrah, but I mean, 10 years from now, when you look at me and say, hey, man, thanks a lot. (laughs) It's like, why didn't you tell me to plant Cabernet? Like, Cabernet sells for a multiplier higher than Syrah. And and I'm like, right. I mean, if if that's what you're doing, grow Cabernet. Um, You know, if you're a wingnut like me, and you want to make Syrah and it's the only thing you've ever wanted to do, awesome. Plant Syrah, by all means. You'll have a blast. I think you'll make really good wine. So, you know, my sense is Cabernet is king. Cabernet is going to be king for a really long time, probably farther into the future than I can see, which is fine. I'm fine with that. 
Aaron Jordan has glimpsed the apexes within wine, but still sounds like an outsider. Thank you very much for being here today. My pleasure. Thanks, Levy. Aaron Jordan of the Fela Winery in Napa Valley and Vineyards in the Sonoma Coast as well. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.